You are now listening to the November 12th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have 12 Apostles, Sermon, and Equipping the Saints. First, let's begin with 12 Apostles. Hello, this is Brian Winston with the Twelve Apostles of Jesus. There is a grotesque creature, Gollum, in The Lord of the Rings, written by J.R.R. Tolkien. Gollum used to be a man named Smeagol. He went fishing with his friends and found a shiny object in the water. It was a ring called the One Ring or the Ruling Ring. He discovered that the ring had the power to make him invisible. Smeagol's heart was completely captured by the ring. He thought he could do anything he wanted if he had the ability to make himself invisible. Smeagol slowly morphed into this dark character, Golem, as he did all that he could do to possess the ring all by himself. He was so captivated by the ring, he came to call it my precious. He killed his friend while they fished together so that he could keep the ring for himself. After causing a commotion in the village by the unruly power of the ring, he was then kicked out of his own hometown. He left his people and lived in a dark valley alone like a wild animal. He became disfigured and turned into a grotesque creature, Golem. Golem started to forget who he was. He longed for the one ring so he could be happy, but the ring slowly destroyed him. The one ring became the cause of his demise, not his happiness. He thought he possessed the ring, but the ring possessed him in reality. Golem represents many of us today. We are driven by our own greed We seek worldly delight to be happy and chase after money or fame, yet we find we have become their slaves instead. Greed controls us and makes us ugly and eventually makes us forget who we really are. The Bible tells us this. Reading from 1 Timothy 6, verse 10, For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. Please listen carefully. Money by itself is not the root of all evil. Money used in the right way can be a good thing. Paul teaches us in Philippians that our offering to the Lord in the form of money can become a fragrant offering. How can money be a fragrant offering if it is evil? Paul tells us that the love of money is a root of all evil. In other words, Loving the money is what we need to avoid. It becomes the root of all sorts of sins. People betray each other for the love of money. Judas Iscariot loved money and his greed became the root of his sin. And eventually it led him to selling his master, Jesus. I hope we will stop serving the money as the master, but seek to serve Jesus Christ as our master. We should spend the money the Lord gives us wisely. Jesus knew that Judas Iscariot would betray him. One day, 
he started to wash the feet of all twelve of the disciples, and that included Judas Iscariot. From what we can tell, Judas Iscariot did not feel anything in his heart, even though Jesus knelt down in front of him and washed his dirty feet. When Jesus explained why he washed their feet, Peter became really enthusiastic and said, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Then Jesus said the following from chapter John 13, verse 10. Jesus said to him, He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you. Jesus was saying that not all of the twelve disciples were clean. He, of course, said this with Judas Iscariot in mind. Jesus was giving Judas Iscariot a chance to turn back, a chance to repent. In fact, Jesus spoke to Judas Iscariot four times to give him a chance to repent. In verse 18, he says, He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. In verse 21, Truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. In verse 26, That is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. And in verse 27, What you do, do quickly. But Judas Iscariot ignored each opportunity Jesus was offering him. Blinded by his own greed, he went through with his plan and sold Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Only after the arrest of Jesus and seeing how Jesus was bound and treated as a criminal did Judas Iscariot begin to regret what he had done. He must have thought, wait, this is not what I expected. He went to the chief priests and elders to call off the deal by returning the money, but they refused. They were allies, but now they betrayed him. Betrayal caused another betrayal, and he deeply regretted what he did. But unfortunately, Judas Iscariot's regret was no more than what it was, a regret. How Judas Iscariot reacted to his mistakes by regretting was profoundly different from how Peter reacted to his mistakes by repenting. In a sense, the mistakes of Peter by denying Jesus and even cursing him was perhaps just as bad as Judas Iscariot's selling of Jesus. Peter sinned greatly just as Judas Iscariot did. However, Peter repented instead of just regretting. Judas Iscariot's remorse remained a regret, and he ended up killing himself. His end was tragic. Let's read Matthew chapter 27, verse 5 and 8. And he threw the pieces of silver into the temple sanctuary and departed, and he went away and hanged himself. For this reason, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. The book of Matthew says Judas Iscariot committed suicide by hanging himself in the field of blood. 
Also called a keldama in Hebrew, the field of blood exists today where the Kidron Valley and the Valley of Hinnom intersect. According to missionaries, the field of blood has cliffs and there are trees near these cliffs. These trees are called Judas Iscariot trees today. It is perhaps because Judas Iscariot chose one of these trees to hang himself. It is also known that there are a lot of sharp rocks with jagged edges off the cliffs around the field of blood. The book of Acts describes his horrific death in detail. We read from Acts chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. Now this man acquired a field with the price of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his intestines gushed out. And it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem, so that in their own language, that field was called Hekeldama, that is, the field of blood. It looks like when Judas Iscariot committed suicide by hanging himself on a tree at the cliff in the field of blood, the tree branch broke, his body fell off the cliff, and was shredded into many pieces by the sharp rocks. That was a gruesome way to end one's life. Had Judas Iscariot repented, instead of just regretting, the resurrected Jesus would have appeared to him just as he did with Peter, and might have said this to him, Do you love me? Do you love me more than thirty pieces of silver? The repented Judas Iscariot might have replied, Lord, please forgive me. I sold you away because I was blinded by my own greed. But you know that I love you. I love you more than money. And the Lord would have healed him and accepted him again, as one of his apostles. Beloved listeners, we cannot dwell in regrets. Regretting must be transformed into repenting. Then we can experience his healing that saves us. Martin Luther once said, Original sin in a man is like his beard. It grows again and again, even after it is shaven Every day. That is why sin needs to be shaven off every day. Here's the original quote The original sin in a man is like his beard, which, though shaved off today, so that a man is very smooth around his mouth, yet grows again by tomorrow morning. As long as a man lives, such growth of the hair. And the beard does not stop, but when the shovel beats the ground on his grave, it stops. And just so, original sin remains in us and bestirs itself as long as we live. But we must resist it and always cut off its hair. My beard grows very quickly, so I have to shave every day. I realize again and again whenever I shave my beard, that my original sin shows itself, just as Martin Luther said. Whenever sin shows itself to us, we must repent and go out to the Lord and ask Him to heal us. I pray 
we would be able to repent each and every day and turn to the Lord as sin shows itself over and over. This concludes today's episode of the 12 Apostles of Jesus. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you again next week.
universe The universe declares your majesty And you are holy 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 Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor David Platt of Radical. Today's topic is realizing what it really means to follow Jesus' Master. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor David. If you have a Bible, and I hope you or somebody around you does that you can look on with, let me invite you to open with me to Mark chapter 8. Feel free to use table of contents if you need to. Mark chapter 8, and as you're turning, I want to welcome those of you in Prince William and Arlington and Loudoun, Montgomery County, as well as others online. It's good to be together around God's Word. And man, this part of Mark that we have been in the last few weeks has been so good in ways I didn't see coming. Last week, I asked the question, who do you say Jesus is? And we talked about how your answer to that question, right where you're sitting right now, will determine your life today, this week, how you live this week, and your life for all of eternity. And I mentioned last week that many of you may be new to church, maybe even visiting for the first time, and you've never seen who Jesus is. And I said last week, I'd say it again, I, I pray that today might be the day when God opens your eyes, maybe in a way you weren't expecting, to see who Jesus is is. But then I mentioned that there are others of you, I'm convinced many others, who have been around church for a long time, maybe even most of your life, but you still haven't seen who Jesus really is. You've seen, maybe even put your faith in, a picture of Jesus that's either inaccurate or at best, incomplete. And you desperately need God to open your eyes, maybe for the first time, or maybe in a fresh way, to who Jesus really is. Because, again, your life this week, and your life forever, depends on it. So let me show you what I mean. We've started the last few weeks in Mark chapter 8, verse 22. We're going to start there again, the healing of Jesus, uh, the blind man. And we've talked each week about how this man's physical sight was restored in two stages, a very unique miracle in the stories of Jesus. So 
Today, I want to show you why this two-stage healing is so important for your spiritual sight, right, where you are sitting. So let's read it one more time. If you don't have a Bible, I'll have it up here on the screen. Uh, and this will hopefully bring everybody up to speed if you've missed the last couple of weeks. It says in verse 22, they came to Bethsaida and some people brought to Jesus a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. And Jesus took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit, in his eye, spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, Jesus asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hand on his eyes again. And he opened his eyes, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And Jesus sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. So, very plainly, this man goes from not being able to see at all to being able to see in part to being able to see perfectly. And we know this story is symbolic of spiritual sight because earlier in the chapter, Jesus used the same language to talk about how his disciples were spiritually blind. They couldn't see. They needed their eyes open to see who Jesus is. So what happens next? Verse 27, Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Now, we talked last week about how this was a very significant moment. Up until this point, only God and demons had acknowledged Jesus for who he is as the son of God, or specifically here as Christ, which means Messiah, the one God had promised to come and save his people for centuries. This is the first time in the book of Mark that a disciple says who Jesus is. And we're thinking, yes, they get it. They see Jesus. And they do in part. But read what happens next. So now we're getting into new territory that we haven't gone into yet. As this story continues to unfold, verse 31 says, And Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And Jesus said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So apparently Peter and the disciples didn't get it. They had confessed Jesus as the Christ, but their understanding of what that means was still unclear. Kind of like a blind man who could see in part, but still needed to see more clearly. Now we're going to pick up in a second with what happens next, but let's pause here and let's think about the problems with the disciples' spiritual sight because I think it's possible for us to have the same spiritual sight problems in our lives. So when Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And Peter said on behalf of the apostles, or the disciples, you are the Christ. 
the Messiah. Let's think about what was going through their minds when they said the Christ, the Messiah. So if you're taking notes, might write down at this point, who the disciples wanted Jesus to be, who Jewish men and women wanted a Messiah to be. They wanted someone who would, on one hand, save their nation politically. Jewish people were longing for a political Messiah who would deliver Jerusalem and Israel from the Gentiles, specifically the Romans at this time, and make their nation great. Second, they wanted someone who would give them power, who would overthrow their oppressors with military might, give them the power they desired. They wanted someone who would make them prosperous, who would restore their wealth and comfort and prosperity in their lives and their families and their nation. Keep going, a couple more things. They wanted someone who would draw the crowds together, who would bring all the leaders and the priests and the scribes and the common men and women all together under one banner to overthrow their enemies. And in all of this, here's the last thing to note. They wanted someone who would not demand their lives. Meaning, they wanted to continue on with their lives as they knew them, only better, with more prosperity and more power in this world. So this is who Jewish people would have had in their minds when they thought about the disciple, when they thought about the Messiah. So for these Jewish disciples in Mark 8, at this significant point in time, they were saying, Jesus, you're him. This is who you are. But their sight was what? It was inaccurate. It was incomplete. But lest we be too hard on them, let's just pause and ask the question, is it possible for us to want the same things? I would submit that as you look at this list, if we're not careful, this can actually be American Christianity today. We can seem pretty zealous to find a political savior for our nation. We can do all kinds of things in pursuit of worldly power. We have created and exported to the whole world a version of Christianity that revolves around worldly prosperity. The prosperity gospel, the good news that you can be prosperous in this world with Jesus. There seems to be little difference practically between how Christians and non-Christians approach possessions and comforts in this world. And hasn't the name of the game in American churches been do whatever it takes to draw the crowds, often to the point of diluting what it means to follow Christ. So maybe it's not just these disciples. Maybe it's us. Maybe it's you and me today who together with these disciples need to see Jesus more clearly. So together, let's open our eyes in this passage to who Jesus really is. And to be clear, the Bible teaches He is not one who will make this nation or that nation great. Jesus is the Savior of all the nations. 
Did you notice where all this is taking place in Caesarea Philippi? A city originally called Panaeus in honor of the Roman god Pan, whose shrine was located there. The population of Caesarea Philippi was mainly Gentile, non-Jewish, actually hostile to Judaism. And this is the place that Jesus is first proclaimed the Messiah, the deliverer, not just of the Jewish people, but of all peoples. He is not just for one nation. He is for all the nations. And contrary to seeking worldly power, Jesus is the humble son of man. Did you see it in verse 31? Right after they confess him as the Christ, the Bible says Jesus began to teach them that the son of man... So he doesn't use this title, Messiah, to refer to himself. He knows what's in their mind when they're using that word. So he switches to talking about himself as the Son of Man, a title that emphasizes both his humanity and his humility. And think about it. Did you notice that right after both of these stories, the healing of the blind man and the confession of the disciples, what happened? In both stories, Jesus said, don't tell anyone about me. Remember, he told the blind man, do not even enter the village with his disciples. They said, you are the Christ. He strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Why is that? Because he didn't want what was in their minds spreading anywhere. If Jesus was on a quest for worldly power, he would be leveraging these healings to his advantage, right? He'd be telling his disciples, this blind man, go and tell everybody else who I am. Get the crowds coming. Instead, he's turning the crowds away. He's the humble son of man who must suffer. Jesus is the suffering servant. This is astounding. Jesus is saying, I've not come to seize our enemies. I've come to suffer at the hands of our enemies. And not just the Romans and the Gentiles. I've come to endure suffering from the Jewish people, from those on the inside. Keep going. Jesus is despised by the crowds. He says he will be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. All the leaders of the Jewish people will totally reject him. And not just reject him, but kill him. He is the king who will conquer by being killed. And this was unthinkable to Jewish disciples. A Messiah who will suffer and be killed, that's the exact opposite of what they had in their minds when they thought of the Christ. Which is why, think about the audacity of Peter to pull Jesus aside and rebuke him. Like the word there for rebuke, same word that we've seen in other parts of Mark, when demons are silenced. Peter is trying to shut Jesus up. He is ruining Peter's plans. And look at the language. Jesus turns and what does he do? He sees his disciples. He sees them for what they really think. And he looks at Peter and he says, get behind me, Satan. What language follow this. It is demonic to look to Jesus 
as one who will save your nation politically, give you power, make you prosperous, draw the crowds while demanding nothing from your lives. That picture of Jesus comes straight from hell. And the danger is it's appealing to us just like it was to them. Because if Jesus was the Messiah they wanted, they could have the nation they wanted. They could have the power and prosperity they wanted. They could have the crowds they desired, and they could have the lives they wanted to live. But Jesus came, watch this, Jesus came to give them something better than all of that. And he came to give you and me something better than all of this. Listen to the Savior of the nations, the humble Son of Man and suffering servant who came to die on a cross and rise from the grave. Listen to what he says next, verse 34. Calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the Holy angels. Do you see it? Do you see who Jesus really is? And do you see what it really means to follow him? Write this down, three things, because these three things go totally against the grain of the way they thought and totally against the grain of the way we think. One, to follow Jesus means you die so you can live. To live, you have to die. That's what Jesus is saying. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. That doesn't just mean a burden to bear, like this is the cross I have to bear. No, people who heard those words in the first century knew exactly what Jesus was saying. The cross was an instrument of death. In order to follow him, you have to die. And Jesus is taking things to a whole other level here. He's not just talking about how he must die. He's talking about how anyone who follows him must die. Jesus is saying, you cannot follow me and hold on to your life. Are you hearing this? You are not following Jesus if you are holding on to your life. And here's the danger. We've created a whole Christian culture that says you are. We've created a whole Christian culture that says Christianity is a both and. You can have Christ and your life as you want it. But it's not true. That's not Christianity. That's a false message that revolves around a false Messiah. Jesus says it's either or. It's either your life or my life. Which do you choose? And if you're going to live in me, you have to die to you. You have to trust me with your entire life. This is Galatians 2.20. I am 
crucified with Christ. I no longer live. I don't even live anymore. But contrast, Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The Christian life is the Christ life. I'm dead. You're dead. Christ is alive in you, which means whatever he wants, I want. Whatever he wants me to be, I will be. Wherever he wants me to go, I will go. Whatever he calls me to give, I will give. No matter the cost, Jesus is my life. I died to me. This is what it means to follow Jesus. It means you die so you can live. Which means, keep going, it means you choose the suffering that comes with obedience over the comfort that comes with disobedience. Jesus is clearly preparing his disciples here for suffering. Not to seek suffering, but to know that as they follow Jesus, suffering would come. And most of the people who read the book of Mark in the first century were facing persecution, potentially even death for following Jesus. They would read these words from Jesus, whoever saves his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake in the gospel will save it. They knew exactly what that meant. Jesus was calling them to be ready in that moment of persecution, maybe even facing death, to choose the suffering that comes with obedience over the comfort that comes with disobedience. That's a choice that many of our brothers and sisters around the world have today. Whether in North Korea, Somalia, Yemen, Pakistan, a variety of places in the world. For most of us, within the sound of my voice right now though, we likely won't face persecution or death in the same way. But there are scores of ways this may still play out in our lives. Some of you have jobs that will be more and more in jeopardy as you profess biblical convictions. And following Jesus may mean losing your job by holding fast to your convictions instead of keeping your job and compromising your convictions. I'll talk about that more in a minute. Others of you, with three billion people in the world who have little to no knowledge of the gospel, God may lead you to take a job somewhere else in the world, maybe among unreached people. And it will not be easy for you to do that, to move your life, your family there instead of staying here. But if that is the way God is leading you, then following Jesus means moving in obedience, not staying in disobedience. I think of many people in our church family right now who are in the process of considering this. Others who have gone to other places and join in from online in the middle of a really challenging places and circumstances in the world. Choosing the suffering that comes with obedience. Or I should add, those whom God calls to stay here, for all of us who are here right now, whom God is calling to make financial sacrifices to support the spread of the gospel among the unreached. To choose to put aside comforts in this world for the spread of the gospel to people who've never heard it. To choose whatever means to let go of for the sake of obedience to the Great Commission, 
Or we read James 1.27 in our Bible reading just a couple of weeks ago. Religion that God our Father looks at as pure and faultless is to look after orphans and widows in their distress. God is calling us to care for children in need, for widows in need, both of which will require a sacrifice of comfort in our lives. If you pursue foster care or adoption, you are signing up for a road full of unknowns. But following Jesus means you obey regardless of what that means. The same will be true when you step into caring for widows in need and not just orphans and widows. So we've talked about caring for refugees, caring for the imprisoned, caring for the impoverished and oppressed and enslaved. We will not do justice in this world according to God's word if our priority is comfort for ourselves. We just won't. The reality is, the more we actually follow Jesus for who he really is, the harder our lives will get in this world. Jesus told us this. It's what he was telling his disciples here. You will experience suffering. You will experience slander. You will experience hardship. You will experience opposition from all sides, inside and outside. But following me means choosing suffering that comes with obedience over comfort that comes with disobedience. Which leads to the last thing Jesus says here about what it really means to follow him. It means you gladly renounce prosperity and applause in this world for prosperity and applause in the world to come. Jesus says in Mark 8, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world? That's a lot. To have it all, the whole world, every, everything that belongs to Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos, and you're just getting started. All of it, all the possessions, all the glamour, all the success, all the fame, everything you could want or imagine in this world, everything Northern Virginia has to offer, everything Montgomery County has to offer, everything Washington, D.C., the United States has to offer, you can have it all only to realize that none of these things will last. None of them will. Do you you see this? Because we live in a world that tells us every day, you're getting bombarded with messages every day. Having things in this world is life. But it's a lie. All the things of this world put together, the whole world, you can have it all and you'll lose your life. Don't spend your life, don't raise your kids to have it all. Don't do it. You'll waste your life, you'll waste their lives. Open your eyes and realize Jesus is life. He is life. Nothing in this world is worthy of your attention like Jesus. Nothing in this world is worthy of your affection, your pursuit, your longing like Jesus. So don't live for worldly prosperity, worldly applause. Renounce these things. Jesus says, for whoever, listen to the language, is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation. Jesus says, don't spend your life getting praise from people in a world that's set against God. That's not life. That's death. Hear this, teenagers. What other people think about you in this world is not what leads to life for you. Getting them to think this or that about you, it's not life. 
Jesus is lovingly saying to you right now, I came to give you real life, not in the prosperity and applause of this world. None of that will last. I came to give you life that will never, ever end, will never, ever fade, that will never, ever, ever let you down. So hear him, teenager, college student, young professional with all the world before you. Hear him, man or woman, in your 30s, 40s, 50s. Hear him, senior adults. See him. See the choice every one of us has. You can live for stuff in this world that's going to fade away and for the applause of people in this world who are ultimately in a world that's set against God. Or you can live for treasure that will never, ever fade for the next 10 trillion years. And you can live for the applause of Jesus and the Father and millions of holy angels. And Jesus is saying, choose life. John Piper said in a sermon on this text, who's the real lover of life here? Jesus is pleading with you. Don't throw your life away. Follow me. Don't believe the lie that 80 years of human praise and physical pleasures are better than 8 million ages of years with fullness of joy and uninterrupted, undiminished, unparalleled pleasures at the right hand of God. Just be smart. For my sake and for the gospel, the greatest news in the world, think about this. What you're losing it all for the one who came and lived the life we couldn't live, a life of no sin against the Father. And then even though he had no sin for which to die, who chose to die on a cross to pay the price for all of our sin. And who, whose story did not stop in a grave. He's the king who conquers by being killed. Three days later, he rises to life, ascends into heaven. And right now, by his spirit, is calling you to trust in him with your life. In a way that will far outlast anything in this world. This is how you save your life. By dying to yourself by choosing the suffering that comes with obedience to Christ over the comfort that comes with disobedience. And by renouncing prosperity and applause in this world for prosperity and applause in the world to come. May God raise up all across this church family, men, women, teenagers who see who Jesus really is, not who we want him to be, and who realize what it really means to follow him, no matter what it costs us in this world, confident in his reward.
The following program is called Equipping the Saints. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. I'm Pastor Greg Lundsted, and I'm so glad that I can share my series from Equipping the Saints with you. I pray that God will grow each and every one of you in Christ through this series. Well, we live in a physical universe with spiritual realities. And each of us has had experiences in this life, and we have them on a daily basis. And if you were to investigate many of the world's religions, you might find in many ways, shapes, or form, they are rooted in religious experience, whether physical or spiritual. And unredeemed man, by and large, uses experience to evaluate whether what he or she believes is true. Now, the sad part is the church should not be that way. We walk by faith and not by sight. We're to walk by faith and not by sight. And yes, we do have experiences and we give God glory for those things he does in our lives. But are we to base our faith and our relationship on those things we experience? There are deceived brethren who, for seemingly good reasons, succumb to worldly philosophies. And ultimately, that undermines the authority, as we will see, of the Word of God. Take, for instance, sometimes there are crusades, for instance, where a lot of the crusade is based on experience and testimony. Now, those things may be true and valid, but our faith is not built on that. Our faith is built on the truth of the Word of God with Christ in the center of that. Now, with this in mind, you know, I've seen situations we've had people here, and we've had people over time who had supernatural experiences And they would hold to those experiences over the truth of the Word of God, even though they would claim the primacy of the Word of God. And I've seen the stumbling blocks that experience has brought forth in the lives of some true believers. Even we, maybe, and those in good churches are tempted at times to rely maybe on our experience, to put weight in our experience. And if we do so, we're going to see that Satan can take temporal advantage of us and lessen the authority of the Word of God in our lives. So with that in mind, I believe we're going to see today that Peter makes it clear in his last letter, his final words, that the Word of God is altogether reliable, that it is everything we need for our walk with Jesus Christ. Would you turn within your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 1? We're going to be looking at verses 16 to 19. And again, as I've shared, this whole first chapter is really all together. The whole letter is really all together, obviously. But as we look at verses 16 to 19, we need to understand the context and what has happened up to this point. We know that Peter has identified himself as the author. Simon Peter, verse 1, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ. And these are his final words. The Lord has made it known, as we saw last time, that his death is imminent, that his leaving of this earthly tent is imminent. This is his last letter, and who is he writing to? Chapter 3, he says that he is writing the second letter, verse 1. This is now the second letter I am writing to you, which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. He says it's the second letter. We know First Peter was the first letter. But yet in this letter, it seems to go much broader, as do all scriptures, as he writes to those who have a like faith as the apostles, a genuine faith, faith in Jesus Christ. And we saw the book is about a walk with Jesus Christ. It's about growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. 
right out of the gates in verse 2, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, right? Seeing that his divine power is granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him. Also, we saw in verse 8 that if those qualities that should be manifest in the context of faith are ours and increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And at the end of the book, in contrast to the bad guys who would try to draw you away from the sufficiency of Christ through his word, Peter says, but grow, verse 18, chapter 3, in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It's about growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's what this book is about. And we're going to see, and as we've seen before, it is through the Word of God, the inspired Word of God that God uses to grow us in our relationship with Jesus Christ. And this letter is clearly a reminder, as we looked at last time. It's We need to be reminded. We need to be stirred up. We need to be waking up at times. We need to be able to have the Word that we can recall it later on. It's a clear reminder. It's a reminder of the truth from a godly apostle faithfully sharing, doing the right thing to stir us up that we would call these things to mind. That we would remember that God uses his word to grow us. That we have everything in respect to this life and godliness. Everything we need through the true knowledge of Christ. And lastly in this book, there are warnings threaded through. And actually the book is quite a big warning that there would be those who would substitute myths or stories or pervert or twist or mock the word of God, and they are threats to genuine faith in Jesus Christ. So then, this book being Peter's last words, his second epistle, they are very important. And they are a reminder for us that ultimately we grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ through his precious and magnificent promises that we have everything we need, lest we be carried away by the air of unprincipled men from our own steadfastness. Okay, with that in mind, we're going to see today that the altogether reliable written word of God is everything we need for our walk with Jesus Christ. Let's look at our passage, 1 Peter 1, verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven, and we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well, to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. That's where we're going to finish today, but it's connected to the next verse also. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Spirit spoke from God. Well, today I believe we're going to see two things. First of all, an implied warning not to base our relationship with Jesus on experience, but to base it on the more sure reality that we all have, which is the truth of the word of God, which is solid and sure. Notice, first of all, this warning, verse 16, for we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. You're going to see throughout this letter, Peter directs and shares that Jesus is his Lord. He is our Lord, believer's Lord. He is the Lord. He is the sovereign one. He is the great I am. The name Jesus speaks of his humanity. You shall name him Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. God is salvation. The Lord is salvation, Yeshua. Christ speaks of the reality of him being the Messiah, the anointed one, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who would reign on David's throne but would need to suffer for the glories to follow. And Peter says here, 4, verse 16, which means this verse starts and it's connected to what has previously been said. And so what has previously been said? Let's walk through just really briefly back starting in verse 2. It's all together, and we've looked at this over the past few times. We have in verse 2 the exhortation by Peter inspired by the Spirit of God's desire for true believers. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Seeing that his divine power has granted us everything pertaining to life in God. This is the scripture. Peter is writing a letter. It is the scripture. And he is saying God has granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. And then he explains more. Verse four, for by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises in order that by them you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now for this very reason, that that we have the scriptures, we have the truth, his precious and wonderfully magnificent promises, that by them we escape the corruption that is in the world. We become more like Jesus Christ. He says, because of that, now for this very reason, also applying all diligence, making every effort... In your faith, it's key. It's not just doing something. It's trusting the Lord and obeying his word, as we're going to see. In your faith, he says here, now in your faith, supply moral excellence. In your moral excellence, knowledge. In your knowledge, self-control. In your self-control, perseverance. In your perseverance, godliness. In your godliness, brotherly kindness. Your brotherly kindness, love. And he explains, for if these qualities are yours, if you possess them, and they are increasing... We see that they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. If God is working through you and by obedience you are obeying his word and these things are being manifest in your life, you are not unfruitful or useless in your relationship with Jesus, the knowledge of him. But he says, for he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted. is looking short, right? Having forgotten his purification from his former sins. We were saved to become more like Jesus Christ. And when we forget that and we get caught up in this life that God is making us like Jesus, he is wanting us to obey his word by his strength and power that we would become more like Christ. Not only in thoughts, but in actions. He says here, Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain of his calling and choosing of you. Make certain. For as long as you practice or do these things, you'll never stumble. He's not saying do these to be saved. He's saying as long as you have the manifestation of Christ by faith, his word working in your life in these areas, you're not going to stumble. You're not going to stumble eternally. It's an evidence you have been saved by Jesus Christ. He says here, For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. It's wide open. If this is the reality, if you've had a changed heart and God's word is working in you, you are growing in the grace and knowledge of him. You are doing these things by obeying his word in faith. He says it's an evidence you're on your way to glory. 
And then in verse 12, what we saw last time, therefore, Peter says, I shall always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth, which is present in you. You already know it, but I'm always ready to remind you. These are the most important things. And he says here, and I consider it right as long as I am in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of right, to wake you up, we saw last week, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent and it's also our Lord Jesus Christ has made it clear to me he's about to go to be with the Lord. What the Lord Jesus predicted to Peter when he was with him on that beach after Jesus had risen from the dead, this was going to happen now. He was going to go to be with the Lord. And he says here, And I also will be diligent, make every effort. This is a faithful shepherd to the end. No retirement here. Faithful shepherd, and it's preaching at least. Faithful shepherd to the end. Be diligent that at any time after my departure, you may be able to call these things to mind. And then we have our passage. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. You know, at first our passage seems disconnected from what he has just spoken of. But if we follow it all the way through to verse 21, we're going to see that he is laying a case for the superiority of the word of God, that he is always ready to remind them of these things. The superiority of the written word, the scriptures. Peter is ready to remind us to stir us up. And he begins to say, look, we did not follow cleverly devised Tales, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter is going to say, it is so important for me to remind you of these things because the scripture is how God works in our hearts. The scripture is what he brought forth. It is his word, his very inspired word. It comes from his mouth. It is not for anyone to bring their own interpretation, but it is brought from God who moved men by the Spirit, as we're going to see. And so here, in verses 16 to 18, we're going to see that Peter speaks of an experience on the Mount of Transfiguration. Quite a grand experience that Peter had, a genuine, true experience that God brought about. Now, this portion in verses 16 to 18 that Peter recalls is a situation in which we call the Mount of Transfiguration, a situation that happened there. The experience is recorded not by Peter, but by Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In Matthew chapter 17, Mark chapter 9, and then Luke chapter 9, verses 27 to 36. And on a side note, it's going to be interesting for our study later. It is only Matthew, Mark, and Luke who record this account. And they were not even there. They were inspired by the Spirit of God to share what God wanted us to know about that account. It is the Spirit of God. And when Peter brings up this account, he doesn't share the details. He doesn't share the details. But he uses it ultimately as an example to prove that Scripture is even more reliable than a genuine experience that God brought about. So with that in mind, I want to give a little brief overview of the Mount of Transfiguration or what Peter speaks of, then we'll come back to our passage here. If you go to Matthew chapter 16, and you might remember when we went through this earlier, Matthew chapter 16, verse 21. At this point, Jesus began to show his disciples that he needed to suffer many things and must go to Jerusalem, be killed and raised on the third day. That's what he starts to begin to tell them. 
He starts to tell his disciples he needs to go to Jerusalem and he will be killed, but he will be raised on the third day. And it's at this point Peter takes him aside and he is thinking, as we will see, satanically. He's thinking man's thoughts and not God's thoughts. And notice in verse 23, Matthew 16, but he turned and said to Peter after Peter said, you know, hey, don't go, forbid it, Lord, that you, you go do that. But the Lord Jesus, he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, you are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. And then after giving a short discourse, the Lord Jesus concerning losing your life here, but gaining it eternally, if you hold on to it, you lose it all eternally. Jesus makes it clear that the Son of Man is going to come in his glory. Look at verse 27, chapter 16. For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will recompense every man according to his deeds. This is his second coming. Truly I say to you, there are some of those standing here who shall not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Jesus has said he's going to need to go to Jerusalem and die, but he's going to rise from the dead. He's going to come back in the glory of his kingdom. There are some standing there listening who would not die until they saw the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So here we have the reality of this situation. Matthew chapter 17, and we'll look a little bit at that, but I want to go to Luke chapter 9, where we have this account. And by the way, Matthew chapter 17 says, After six days Jesus took him to the mountain. And Luke chapter 9, 28 says, and some eight days. Well, people say, oh, six days or eight days, what is it? Well, Matthew is very clear, six days. Luke says, some eight days. And by the way, the Jews would count any piece of a day as a full day. So if you add one on each side, it's that general sentence there. And that's why we see the eight days there. Luke chapter 9, verse 27. But I say to you truthfully, There are some of those standing here who shall not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. And some eight days after these sayings, it came about that he took along Peter and John and James and went up to the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face became different and his clothing became white and gleaming. And behold, two men were talking with him and they were Moses and Elijah who appearing in glory, notice the term glory, were speaking of his departure. That's going to the cross and leaving this earth, right? Dying and rising from the dead, right? That's what Moses and Elijah are talking about with Jesus, of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem, right? That's the important part. That's what Peter had missed, by the way, as we'll see. Now, Peter and his companions had been overcome with sleep. Some of you might be that way this morning, right? But when they were fully awake, they saw what? His glory. And the two men standing with him. It came about as these, and it came about as these were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here and let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, not realizing what he was saying. Verse 34, and while he was saying this, it's interesting, while Peter's making this statement, which doesn't know what he's saying, a cloud starts forming cloud formed and began to overshadow them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. It's emphatic. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. 
And they kept silent and reported to no one in those days any of the things which they had seen. What an experience. A genuine religious experience where God brought it about. This is the Apostle Peter, James, and John. And Peter is relating to this. It is one like no other person has had. Jesus Christ in His glory before He comes in glory. And the statement of the Father speaking directly to Him. Tremendous experience. It's hard to beat that, right? Now back to our passage in the book of Second Peter. The problem is there are false teachers, and there were those who were using experiences. They had had certain things, and they were following what Peter will say were cleverly devised tales. You'll see later on the false teachers and false prophets that Peter warns of in chapter 2. Those who twist and pervert the word of God and mock it. They promise freedom, but they don't give you freedom. Back in our passage, verse 16, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter had made known that Christ is coming again, the power and coming, and he had made known that he was a witness to that tremendous event. But we were eyewitnesses, and we'll look at that word in a minute, of his majesty. Now, the term cleverly devised speaks of wise or crafty. The term tales comes from the Greek word muthos, where we get our word myth. It speaks of fables, myths, or stories. He's saying we didn't follow clever or tricky myths or stories or fables. We didn't follow that. When we declared the truth of Christ coming again, which he will, and that we were witnesses of his glory, it wasn't because of some fanciful tale. You see, Jesus Christ came in humility and took on humanity and died for our sins, but he will come again in glory. He will recompense every man according to his deeds. And Jesus had said to his disciples, some will not taste death until they saw the man coming in his kingdom, i.e. glorified, the way he would look when he comes, the glorified Lord. And Peter is referring to the event on the mountain here. And Peter is saying, hey, we didn't follow this when we made known to you this reality. Yet there are bad guys later on in chapter 3 will say, where is the promise of his coming? Peter made known his coming. He's coming back to judge. Therefore, you need to repent. God has fixed a day in which you will judge the world through a man, having appointed him, right? Jesus Christ. But Peter had made known this truth. and bow down before the Lord most holy before the King of glory come and lay your burdens down before the friend who's faithful before the one who's able for he is our Ah uh-huh. 
lift our voice in praise unto the rock of ages, unto the God who saves us. Come and glorify His name, all the earth together, all the saints now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.